Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend, and we have a great show this week to help you unwind. We will hear from author Lauren Groff about whether her new book about nuns in the Middle Ages is actually kind of magical and escapist. I kept joking with my friends that I wanted to create a lesbian separatist utopia on some (laughs) island somewhere. Plus, Wendy Suzuki invites us to figure out how to make the best of our anxiety. This is the moment to start talking about it and to find ways to bring it back into the role that anxiety was meant to play in our lives. But first, it's our panel on the week that was. This week, we have two excellent guests with us. First up is WBEZ education reporter Susie on. Susie, hey. Hey, Greta. Thanks for coming. We also have the host of the Axios Today podcast, Nyla Boodoo. Nyla, welcome back. Thank you, Greta. So it is a week. This weekend marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks. Actor Michael K. Williams, who played Omar on The Wire, died earlier this week. And the fraud trial against Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes started. I think we should just dive in and start with sports this week. The U.S. Open ends this weekend. And a couple of days ago, Naomi Osaka rocked the tennis world with the news that she is considering stepping away from tennis again for mental health reasons. The player Naomi lost to in the tournament is Layla Fernandez. She's 19. She's one of a handful of super young players who's just dominating in the tournament under enormous pressure, which does feel a little like history repeating itself. Nyla, you're following this, right? I am a huge tennis fan. Uh I actually, full disclosure, I'm in New York for reporting reasons, but came to New York last week to go to the U.S. Open. Wow. And I'm a huge Naomi Osaka fan, and it just broke my heart a little Mm. to see her news conference on Friday night where hearing how she was just saying, I think something's wrong with me. I need to fix myself. Mm. The pressure that I'm under... First, I just have to say so much props to her for opening this conversation. She has created space for so many people, men and women, in the Olympics and other places to talk about what they're going through. So I think that is an incredible accomplishment that she has made. But I think she's also created a really good conversation in tennis. And I saw it firsthand on Thursday. Um, Coco Goff had lost the day before. I saw her play doubles. I was on one of the small courts uh, at the Open, and I was watching actually a great Japanese player, Nishikori, and I knew she was coming up next to play doubles, and I just kept seeing all these cameramen coming in, and they were all like, I mean, they literally like every changeover, like another cameraman would come and like set up equipment, Mm -hmm. and by the time she came on, there was like an entire row of cameras, Mm -hmm. and it just gave me like one little tiny sense of 
how much pressure she is under as a 17-year-old just playing doubles. And she'd already lost her singles. And I just said, there's a lot of pressure on on these people, especially on young women. And especially young women of color. Mm -hmm. And there's a standard that's impossible for people to meet. And it can't just be if you don't win the tournament, you failed. Um, And I think so. I I appreciate those conversations are happening now. But it's terrible that the cost that has been paid for us to have these conversations. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I think you're right that, I mean, yes, it's great the conversations are happening, but it is, yeah, to consider the cost I think is also really intense. Susie, how much have you been following these stories? You know, I've been following it a bit, not not like Nyla, not actually watching not going um, to the US courtside. <laughs> um, but but it, you know, it's an interesting moment in sports around mental health. Um, you know, we've we've got um, Naomi, but you know, I also think of Simone Biles um, yeah. uh, bringing this up during the Olympics. You know, it's interesting to hear some of the responses around it. You know, on one hand, you uh, you hear from a lot of people who are supportive of that. But it's kind of been heartbreaking to hear um, the criticism, you know, it's sort of like, well, mm-hmm. you signed up for this kind of thing. Um, you you mm-hmm. should be able to handle the pressure. Look at these other athletes who have been able to handle it. And you have to wonder, well, have they been able to handle it? You know, we don't right. know. We don't know. And, and it's sort of like um, the sports world has kind of created this mindset of, you know, walk it off, you know, get back out mm-hmm. there and play and Maybe now this is the moment where just as a society, as we look at, you know, these the, these athletes who we put a lot of pressure on to kind of perform, that we need to take a step back and remember these are actual people that feel pressure even in um, something that they excel in, something that they've trained years for, that they can have these moments where they just can't do it and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Just last night, I was hanging out with a friend who, when she was a teenager, was a competitive skater. And so, you know, she's super, super familiar with all of the pressure. And she was another friend asked her how she felt about Simone Biles stepping down or, you know, talking about her mental health issues during the Olympics. And and she said it was so exciting to see in a lot of ways, because finally, there's a model for being able to do that as opposed to the walk it off, the just power through stuff, which is what so many of us are taught we're supposed to do in so many different avenues of our lives, you know? Yeah, for sure. So Nyla, since you're there, what have been some of the highlights of the tournament so far? This has been such an exciting tournament in the sense of the young women who and young men, like the 18 year olds who have just like upset everybody. And so it's been really fun to see uh all of them, particularly Layla Fernandez is my favorite among that group and just their confidence. And it is nice to hear like someone like Layla Fernandez, who turned 19 this week, say at the beginning of the week anyway, like, I'm just I'm just trying to have fun. Um, I will say as she's gotten farther in the match, it's but she does look more nervous. And I think that's really natural. But I do think it's a good reminder of why we love the sport um, watching athletes who are really, really good at what they do, but then also able to enjoy what they're doing. The performative nature of how we are all critics is drives me crazy. And we could do a whole nerd Mm -hmm. panel on how much I hate that. But (laughs) I do think like at the end of the day, I would like to believe that people want to see people do well. And I that's what we love about athletes. They're so good at it. And they perform at such a high level. And I, you know, and we want them to be happy about doing it. 
Yeah, I hope we can just figure out a way to to celebrate, especially these super talented young people without also breaking them, because it seems like so much about what, you know, it's that fame, right? It's so much about what makes them successful is also the thing that ends up being really difficult to figure out how to balance out. It's hard. Yeah. So speaking of young, famous people, uh, Britney Spears's dad, Jamie Spears, formally filed to end his 13-year-long conservatorship over Britney. Britney's lawyers are calling it a victory. This is something we've talked about on the show before. I'm kind of surprised that it it seemed like this was going to have to happen eventually. But I don't know. I'm kind of surprised it happened as quickly as it did in a lot of ways. I'm curious about if y'all are at all surprised by this this timeline. What do you think, Susie? I, you know, I, I'm kind of not surprised by the timeline in a way I feel yeah. like um, Britney's father, Jamie Spears, you know, I think it's sort of like he saw the writing on the wall and it's like, you know, just yeah. just go ahead and, and, and put something out there. Um, in his statement, there there was a lot of like talk of love, doing this out of love. And of course, mm-hmm. um, that's not something that Britney's team necessarily buys. Um, and, you know, they think that it's it's sort of a move to avoid accountability in court. Um, as, you know, Britney has before alleged financial abuse from her father. So, you know, in some ways it's sort of like I could see Jamie Spears sort of making this move now to to try to get in there because with, with more time passing, maybe that's going to look worse and might uh, be harder for him to, to make a move um, in terms of, uh, you know, what's going on in court. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nyla, how long have you been following the Free Britney stuff? I feel like it really popped up for me when the New York Times documentary came out earlier this year. I just watched the New York Times documentary like two months ago. So I feel like I was even more late to it. And (laughs) watching it was just really sad. I think that's why I didn't watch it, honestly. I mean, I think when you're like, when you are producing daily news, like I intentionally do not consume things that I think are going to depress me, which is why I've been watching like Schmigadoon and Ted Lasso. (laughs) But but (laughs) I did, I was really glad that I did watch it. And it just... It's just such a sad story. And, you know, to Susie, to your point, like, yeah, I mean, Mr. Spears, dude, like, I think Mm -hmm. that people, yeah, I think it's just going to keep looking worse for him. And maybe that was the calculation that was made. Um, But it's just, you know, it's, it's to the point of like how I think it's a really important moment in society where we realize, like, how are we treating these young women? Yeah. And then... In Britney's case, like, she's not a young woman anymore. And why is she being treated like a 14-year-old who doesn't, you know? And I think Mm -hmm. that's horrifying to think of, like, her lack of reproductive rights. Yeah. Um, It's it's terrible. So I am later to the free Britney, but I have to say I'm also, like, super fascinated by the people who took this up early and were passionate about Mm -hmm. it and... I've just sort of watched it with interest and been really impressed at people who are like, we are going to keep this story going. Because if if it not for the media, I don't think any of this would have happened. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it's also such a fascinating documentary just from the point of view of, of seeing how how much has changed in terms of the misogyny that was just so widely acceptable in the 90s. So <laughs> yeah. cringy. Oh, oh, terrible. Uh. Yeah, oh, and the way that like um, you know these at the time like Britney when she first came on the scene, I mean she was still I think a, a teen, and mm-hmm. it's it's like how 
how much um, artists like her and Christina Aguilera were like sexualized and um, and and then they're they're blamed for that. They're the yeah. ones who are blamed for oh, that. Of course, yeah. And I mean, I, I will admit, like. As a, I don't know, middle schooler or high schooler seeing um, Britney Spears, hearing her music, I'm like, oh, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I, I think back and and it took some time and it took the, the free Britney movement to make me realize, wow, no, this is what we've done to these yes. girls and yes. these women. It's, yes. It's not them. This is how they've gotten into the situation. It's not so much what they've done. It's it's how, you know, the industry has has created this situation around them. It's like the monsters we've created. Yeah. 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 So speaking of things that were popular in the 90s, did y'all's Twitter timelines just like explode in a puddle of tears with this video from this guy, Steve, from Blue's Clues this week? And then look at you and look at all you have done and all you have accomplished in all that time. And it just, it's just so amazing, right? I mean, we started out with clues and now it's what? Student loans and um, jobs and families. And some of it has been kind of hard. It did. Oh my goodness, yes. Okay, so like this is one that I'm really confused about because... I never saw Blue's Clues. Oh, so I thought it was just me. Oh, I'm with you, Greta. God, Nyla. <laughs> Same. No, we. I think we are. All of us I'm are like of the, the age wrong word that was not. Though. Yes, but yes, that's the we, thing is that I have several friends who have also posted about this who are a couple years older than I am, even. And I think it has to do with like one. My friend Jill mentioned that she babysat her younger brother a lot, so mm. that's why she watched it. But yeah, I mean, I looked at. So the whole deal is this guy Steve. Apparently he like he hosted Blue's Clues and he went off to college and it was like a very sudden departure from the show. And and I think it kind of rocked the worlds of a lot of kids. The thing is, he departed in 2002, which I don't know about y'all, but I was like almost done with high school at that point. So it was so weird to see friends who were even older than that be like, oh, my God, this video from Steve. (laughs) It was just like y'all are like we were almost like we were about to go off to college like why were you so impacted by this thing it just was really confusing i think this is like a pandemic repressed emotion situation yes I, yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah i think this is really about the delta variant look let's be honest <laughs> I, i'll admit i watched that video and like i i felt emotional and i'm did like it get I you? only it did in a weird way. And I think, I don't know, it was more like this idea of like putting myself in a place as a child. And, mm. and you know, when when Steve left Blue's Clues, I was already in college. Right. And so for me, it was just sort of like, okay, I know of the show. I know it's Deal. Um, I know who this guy is. Didn't mm. watch the show, but I, I get it. But then, like, I don't know, there was something about like thinking of it from a, a child's perspective of like, Oh, here's the, my favorite show, and this guy left, and he never came back. And like, I don't know, maybe I'm just like too much in my feelings with the <laughs> pandemic that it made me emotional. But I'll admit it, I got emotional. I'm the opposite of you. I don't know why, but I was like watching very cynically, which yeah. you guys know me. That yeah. is not me to normally be like I'm not right. emotional. But I was watching, and mm-hmm. I was like, is this some sort of like Nickelodeon emotional ploy? Yeah, uh, totally. It's, I was... Yeah, my heart like hardened. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Greta, our hearts hardened. When I saw him, I was like, you're old. Why are you talking about this like this happened yesterday? This was 20 years ago. Come on. Okay, that's my yeah, unpopular I don't know. opinion. No, I thought it was really weird, but I don't know. I get, I mean, it 
it was an interesting thing to think about. Like, I don't know, like if (laughs) the version I was thinking of yesterday is if somehow there were a video of like Jared Leto as Jordan Catalano being like, you know what, Angela Chase, I'm so sorry I treated you like shit in that show, My So-Called Life. Like that probably would get me, you know, like I'm sure there's a version of that somewhere that, you know. It's just like this specific iteration of yes. it. Just like or did Zach Morris apologized for all yes. of his wrongdoing. <laughs> his yes. decades of high school wrongdoing. Oh, that's a great one. I love the idea. And I, I do feel like we just need a shorthand for like, oh, yeah, this is actually probably about the Delta variant. <laughs> you <know? laughs> did you just say that? I'm just like, it's just because of the pandemic. Like That's my new line. I'm like, I think it's because of the pandemic. <laughs> Nyla, Susie, thank you both so much. This was really fun. Thank you. Thanks. Loved it. Here's a question for you. Have you ever daydreamed about being a nun? in the Middle Ages, you know, during the Crusades when the first documented influenza outbreak happened and leprosy was still a thing? No, not interested? Well, I am here to tell you a new book might actually change your mind about that. It's called Matrix. It just came out. It's Lauren Groff's fourth novel, and it's about Marie de France, a 12th century poet and general badass. She's cast out of court and told to take over a dank, dark abbey, and it turns out she's good at running shit. And she ends up transforming the Abbey into someplace that actually, weirdly, sounds kind of great. Lauren is here to tell us about it. Lauren Groff, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Oh my gosh. Thank you for writing like such an exquisitely like weird and fun <laughs> and bizarre book. It was just such a pleasure to dive into this world. It really was. So I think we should start with the fact that the book is called Matrix, but this like has very, very, very little to do with Keanu Reeves. Nothing, in fact. Yes, despite (laughs) the fact that my husband cannot refer to my book without calling it The Matrix. (laughs) So this actually has to do with the Latin baseline of what Matrix means, which is mother, right? Mm -hmm. And you you see uh, this word reoccur all over the place in geology. It's where gemstones are set, the sort of the substrate into which gemstones are set. You see it in organizational structures. You see it in, say, sculpture. It's the the original form on which other sculptures are created. So it's all over the place. And it just means the original, the, the, the original form. That's so cool. Okay, so tell us about Marie. She is like a real person who existed in real life a very long time ago, but not that much is known about her, right? Right. So she had the fortune slash misfortune of not being a woman who was directly um, related to the seat of power. Uh, And Mm -hmm. women at the time were only considered interesting relationally. So if they were the daughter of a king or the wife of a king or the mother of a king. <laughs> That's when, you know, their lives are considered worthy of being being written down. So, but, but Marie, we don't actually know, even though she was the first female poet in French that we know of, um, nobody stopped to be like, wow, this is an extraordinary woman. She's doing things that women so far have not done. Um, and we should probably pay attention to who she is. So we do know that she was educated because she was writing. 
literate women were fairly rare and mostly in the upper classes at the time because uh, the only reason why women were taught to read and to write and to do numbers was to take over the, the management of large estates, mm-hmm. which they were extraordinarily good at and they did everywhere. So I'm curious, like, to what extent is Marie kind of perfect to you because there is some stuff about her, but you as a fiction writer get to like fill in all of these amazing blanks. It was so much fun to do to not, she, I had um, nothing, right? I had her, her lay, which are her poems. They're sort mm-hmm. of wild, magical short stories in poetry form. And I would encourage anyone to go out and find them because they're amazing. Mm-hmm. And we had her fables. So those are the two books that we know, we think we know that she wrote. And um, all I could all I could do in order to create this life of this this actual historical woman was to look back at her work and to pull from the work these vivid images and these ideas and try to create I guess a matrix for the the biography <laughs> of this person that I was trying to summon into existence. So I sort of reverse engineered out of her own work a life, which is probably the authorial fallacy. But I don't care because it's the only thing I could do. (laughs) No, I think it's great. Um, I am like after reading this book and I read it a couple months ago now, I have to say I've been just like haunted by the idea of an Abbey. I think it's filled with contradictions. um, But I like the way you wrote it. It was so hard to tell at times. Like, is this a prison like hellhole for women who don't fit in? Or is it actually like kind of a blissful, amazing way of opting out of a bunch of patriarchal bullshit, you know? Yeah, I think it's both, right? I think, I mean, that was my hope and my intention. In some ways, right, this came out of the Trump years and the fact that I was just so sick of being yelled at by men. (laughs) I like turn on the radio and there's this like smarmy oleaginous voice like telling you that you're worthless. Mm. Um, And I hated that. I hated it. Um, and I kept joking with my friends that I wanted to create a lesbian separatist utopia <laughs> on some island somewhere. Right? Like, okay, great. So I please. wasn't crazy in picturing oh, that. Oh no! Oh my god! <laughs> but at the same time, I think it's probably well intentioned, but also very sentimental idea that women are somehow better humans than men because I don't think we are, right? I think, mm-hmm. you know, we're still human, right? We're not, right. I, we shouldn't be idealized because that's actually creating um, objects out of people. Mm-hmm. The historical truth is that at the time, uh, nunneries and convents were both, right? They were both mm-hmm. this space of autonomy where women were in charge of women, but they were frequently places where women became political prisoners. So it was both, right? I mean, they were places where the rejects were sent, but the women who were deemed unmarriageable, um, the women who refused to be married, um, the women who perhaps did not conform to gender norms, uh, like Marie, you know, that's where they would have gone if they were lucky. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's so interesting hearing you talk about this era because it feels like such a deviation from your last novel, Fates and Furies, which was, you know, just so contemporary. It's so contemporary. Totally, totally. But of course, again, like I bring in a lot of ideas from the Greeks, right? So like 
very that's ancient true. ideas. That's very yeah. true. So I play around with time a lot, but this this particular time I was not familiar with in in terms of my writing, but I was deeply familiar with it in terms of my intellectual life because I thought I was going to be a medievalist in college. I took um, a year, a whole year of Ancien Français, and I was doing a lot of translations um, out of Old French and into into English, modern English. It, it was this extraordinary, almost fabulous time where the stories being told are a lot more wild and and psychologically interesting than perhaps a lot of the contemporary stories that are told now. Hmm. That's so cool. It does seem like there's something about, I don't know how much it actually has to do with like a lack of scientific knowledge at that point, but there just seemed to be so much more room for magic. Oh, there was so much magic. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is the the era of unicorns, actual unicorns. Right. People believe that they existed. Yeah. And like fairies. And fairies. Like the, yeah, exactly. I mean, um, the Plantagenets, the, the family, was uh, supposedly descended from a fairy, right? And and that's why they glittered. <laughs> they, they had Ugh. so much power. Hmm, that's so cool. So you were working on this book during the pandemic, right? Like you at least were doing edits on it during, you know, intense times last year? Yeah, I finished it right before the pandemic struck. So yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. Um, it was... Uh, it was a bomb, to be honest. I was stuck in a house with my... You're saying bomb, not bomb, right? It was probably both. <laughs> <laughs> I meant bomb with an L, but bomb okay. is just as appropriate. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's start with the bomb part anyway. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very difficult time and having this community of women who I know I knew at the time that I created, <laughs> like, like, I understood that they didn't, they're not actual. Um, That's kind of perfect because then they can't even let you down, right? It's like... I know. (laughs) So just coming back to them was just pure joy on a daily basis. And then the bomb was, um, I was done halfway through and then I was sort of left going, what's the meaning of my existence? Mm. (laughs) Like I I still, still, the pandemic is happening still Mm -hmm. and I need another project. Mm. So you haven't figured out the whole existence. You don't have any anything enlightening to share with us today? On oh, that dear front? God. No, you would never go to a novelist for that because our job is to ask questions, not to answer them. I hope that you have a lot of questions at the end of the book. No answers. I like to think that by like circling around the questions, though, like there are answers that come to light. Yeah. But is that an answer? Or is that sort of a solace? I think it's different. Oh, yeah, that's a fair point. Speaking of bombs. Yeah. 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 Lauren Groff, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with me. It was a delight for me, too. Thank you. In just a minute, are you stressed out? I mean, I have no idea why on earth you would be. There's a new book out. It's called Good Anxiety, and it just might help you figure out what to do with all that aches. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I think it's fair to say that over the past 18 months especially, we have all had our fair share of anxiety, whether or not it was a thing in our lives before that. And a lot of us have worked really hard to figure out how to keep it at bay. But what if we could actually embrace anxiousness? Our next guest not only believes all of us can do that, but that we should. Dr. Wendy Suzuki is a professor of neuroscience at NYU who studies the plasticity of the human brain, essentially all the ways that even adult brains can adapt to change. She just wrote a book called Good Anxiety, Harnessing the Power of the Most Misunderstood Emotion. Wendy, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much, Greta. I love being here on Nerdette. Um, Okay, so in the book, you talk a lot about how your own reframing of your relationship with anxiety led you to write this book. Can we start there? Tell us what happened. Absolutely. You know, it it was uh, the observation of first all the anxiety that I was seeing all around me at NYU, in my students, in my colleagues. And I must admit, lastly, in myself, it's like, oh, look at all that anxiety out there. And so, oh, oh, maybe, maybe I have a little, little bit of introspection to do. (laughs) But um, the stat that just still floors me is that 90% of Americans say they suffer from anxiety. And that was, that was a stat taken before uh, the lockdown. That was kind of my fuel to say, okay, I I know that there's something that, that we can do. I know that we need a new approach. What is that approach? And what did I turn to? Of course, I turned to science. This Mm. is the moment to start talking about it, to address it, to look at the science behind it and to find ways to bring it back into the role that anxiety was meant to play in our lives, which is protection. Mm. It is protection. So yeah, in the book, you make a really helpful distinction between anxiety and fear, but the fact that our brains aren't actually good at telling those two apart. Can you unpack that for us? So anxiety is really at its core, a response to unpredictable situations. There is a system that all neuroscience majors learn about called the sympathetic nervous system. And all the listeners out there might uh, have heard of it called the fight or flight response. That is part of your nervous system that allows uh, it to be, it becomes activated automatically when there is a possible threat out there, whether it's real or imagined. People are saved every day because they have that response. But too much of even the best thing in the world is not good. Too much chocolate is not good. And now we have too much of the activation of that stress and anxiety system. And so the book is guiding everybody to deregulate, to to dial that anxiety response down so it can be that protective mechanism that was always intended to be. So yeah, how do we do that? Here's the best way to uh, de-escalate that stress anxiety response. 
deep breathing. That's the only way to consciously activate that system. And that part of the nervous system is called the parasympathetic nervous system. And so that part of the nervous system mm-hmm. decreases your heart rate, decreases the respiration, puts blood back into your digestive and reproductive systems. So it's the rest and digest system. So here's the second most powerful tool. It's not really a second. It's another one that became clear to me during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And that comes from the topic of my first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, the effects of exercise, the transformative effects of exercise on your brain. And so I knew very well that exercise decreases anxiety, depression, it enhances good affective state. Every time you move your body, especially when you're getting your heart rate up, you give your brain a bubble bath of wonderful neurochemicals <laughs> like dopamine, serotonin, noradrenaline. You mm. take a power walk before that lecture or before that exam. You go up and down the stairs just once, get that blood pumping, and you will start to feel that anti-anxiety relief. Wendy, Dr. Suzuki, thank you so much for talking with me. This was really fun. Thank you so much, Greta. It's been a pleasure. All right, that's it for this week. We are taping our book club discussion a little bit early this month, which means we would love to hear from you if you read Crying in H Mart. We have been talking amongst ourselves. We're very curious to know like the moment at which you started crying while reading this book. Otherwise, we'd love whatever thoughts you have. You can record yourself on your phone and then email that file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Do it by Tuesday, September 14th. You can also keep in touch with us on the interweb. Sign up for our newsletter at wbez.org slash nerdataf. It is full of links for fun stuff and recipes and book recommendations. And it comes out every Friday morning. It's pretty sweet. I think you would like it. Again, that website, wbez.org slash nerdataf. The show is produced by me and Hannah Edgar with help from Anna Bauman. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. See you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.